to worse. Saul failed, just like all the rest of us do. But instead of confessing that failure and repenting, he doubles down on his rebellion by dabbling in demonism. And it doesn't end well with him. While some argue differently, there is little reason to believe that Saul was not a believer. He had the Holy Spirit in the early part of his kingship. And then the Spirit was removed from him. But that doesn't argue against his salvation. In fact, I think that argues for his salvation, that he had the Holy Spirit in the first place. Saul was a believer who lived the final portion of his life out of fellowship with God big time. And he died what John calls in the New Testament the sin that leads to death. Or at least he appears to have died that way. I believe that's also what Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6 is speaking about when it reads this way. The text says, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. I think that describes what happened to Saul. There's great controversy over Hebrews chapter 6. Some people use Hebrews chapter 6 as a passage that would state that one could lose their salvation. There are other people that don't want to say that, so they would use Hebrews chapter 6 as a passage that's not really talking about a believer at all. It's just talking about someone who claimed to be a believer. But if we look at this passage, we can't really look at it that way. Look at the description again of the person that's being spoken of here. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, if we just stop there, we might just say the person was a believer or the person was not a believer. We might lean toward them being a believer, but we wouldn't quite be sure. So let's go on. They've been enlightened and then have tasted of the heavenly gift. Well, the fact that they've tasted it does seem to be a metaphor that they've received it. So when you put enlightened and tasted the heavenly gift together, the case is being built that the person being spoken about here is a believer. But then we go to, I think, what is the final nail, and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. It's very, very difficult to argue that that person's not saved. Very difficult to argue. And then finally, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. No, we can't say that this was just a person who claimed to have accepted Christ, but then fell away because they never were believed in the first place. Problem is, how do you fall away from something that you were never on in the first place? I believe that that's a weak view. Now, there's another view that says that this is a believer and that what's being spoken of in this passage is that they're losing their salvation. You can see maybe why they might come to that conclusion in verse 6, and then have fallen away. It's impossible to renew them again unto repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. But there's a problem with that view too. And once you point it out to people that use this as a passage that say you could lose your salvation, they want to run away from it as fast as they can possibly run away from it. Because I know of no one, there may be somebody out there, but I've never heard of them, certainly nobody that's a major theological figure. I know of no one that would say, once you lose your salvation, you can never get it back. Even those who hold that view, which I believe is a very faulty view, I believe in eternal security. But if you were to say that, that doesn't match up with this passage. Because this passage, if you took it that way, would have to read, once you lose your salvation, you're done. And since some of those people think that when you sin, you lose your salvation instead of your fellowship, 
You sin and you're out and it's impossible to renew you again unto repentance. No, that's not what it means either. It's a very poor passage to use as validation for a lack of eternal security. What this passage does mean, I believe, and not just this, but the four other warning passages in the book of Hebrews, I believe all five warning passages, this one included, are speaking to someone who is legitimately saved. But I also think the warning is not against losing your salvation or not against thinking you're saved and you were never saved in the first place. The warning is against finishing poorly, against living a great period of your life out of fellowship with God. And what this passage is saying and what John, I think, is saying, too, when he talks about the sin that leads to death, is that there is a line of rebellion that one can cross for which there's no return. I think God, in his infinite genius, has not told us exactly where that line is. Because you know how we are. If he had told us exactly where that line is, most of us would live right next to it. But he hadn't told us where it was. And that's why this is such a grave warning. Because we never know when we have rebelled long enough that God says, that's it, there's no repentance for you. I'm taking you home with the sin that leads to death. So I think that's what's going on in Hebrews chapter 6. I believe, it's a, I believe Saul is a perfect Old Testament example of someone who did die the sin that leads to death. There is a line of rebellion that can be crossed from which there's no return. For years, Saul had made one bad decision after another, and it finally caught up with him. God finally takes him out. I want to be very sure you understand this should not be confused with those who say that you can lose your eternal life. I happen to agree with Charles Ryrie. If we could lose our eternal life, we're calling it the wrong thing. It's not eternal. It's something, but it's not eternal life. What I will preach tonight in no way can indicate that Saul lost his eternal life or that he was saved and then ended up going to hell. That's not the point at all. But there is a line that can be crossed where God says, enough. That's enough. I'm not putting up with it anymore. The bad thing that happens then is God quits disciplining you. When God withdraws that discipline, that's when you know you're in big trouble. For the church age believer who dies the sin that leads to death, and I'm using John's terminology that has also been called by other theologians the sin unto death, so I'll probably use both those terms tonight. But for the church age believer who dies the sin that leads to death, there will be no well done at the judgment seat of Christ. That person will be there. And since we've all known people that we think might have died that way, and I'll talk about that in a moment, but since we've all know people that we think might have died that way, who we were certain were believers, or at least proclaimed their allegiance to Christ and their faith in Christ early in life, I think that's a comforting idea. They're going to be at the judgment seat of Christ, but they won't receive a well done. There'll be no reward for them in heaven. But the person in that status will be in heaven. And whether we like it or not, they're going to be in heaven in a place of no more pain, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more death. The old things have passed away for them just like for you and me. They will be in a state of ultimate bliss, perhaps, except for that one moment at the judgment seat of Christ where they will most likely will have shame. And I'm using Paul's term, shame there. He encourages us to live a life that pleases God so that we won't be ashamed in that day. Now, if he's going to encourage us in that way, then we have to assume that you might be ashamed in that that way if it comes down to it. The end of Saul's life is recalled in another passage in 1 Chronicles chapter 10, verses 13 through 14, and it reads this way. 
Listen carefully. So Saul died for his trespass, which he committed against the Lord, because of the word of the Lord, which he did not keep. And he also asked counsel of a medium, making inquiry of it, and did not inquire of the Lord. Therefore, listen to this, therefore he killed him. That's God is the reference there. He killed him and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. It's Saul's meeting with this medium and his subsequent death that will be the primary subject of discussion tonight. But before we get into the text of 1 Samuel chapter 28 itself, and also 1 Samuel chapter 31, I need to address an issue, a very serious issue, that sometimes arises whenever we discuss this concept called the sin that leads to death, or the sin unto death. And what I'd like to do tonight is cut off a gross misapplication before we ever get to it. Just because we see someone dying a very uncomfortable death, it does not automatically mean that they're dying the sin that leads to death. You'll notice in this account that we'll study once we get to chapter 31, that not only Saul dies, many of the Israeli army dies, and three of Saul's sons die that day. One of the sons being Jonathan. And there's absolutely nothing in any of these texts that lead us to believe that Jonathan was walking out of fellowship with God. In fact, you would be led the opposite way, that Jonathan was a very strong believer in Yahweh. So there's no indication at all that Jonathan died the sin unto death, yet he dies in the same battle that his father dies in. Father and sons, we don't know too much about the other ones, but father and sons die in the same battle the same day. So we should not be quick or so quick to judge others on the circumstances of their death. The time and the manner of one's death is purely a matter for the sovereignty, the wisdom, and the love of God. It's his business how he takes someone home. Peter was crucified. John Huss was burned at the stake. Stephen was stoned. James was beaten to death. Jude was crucified. Thomas was run through with a spear. And I don't think any of us would question the spiritual credentials of any of those men. Not to mention the tens of thousands of others over the course of history, who have been martyred for the Christian faith. Just because they were burned at the stake doesn't in any way imply that they died the sin that leads to death. A painful death does not mean that one has finished poorly. Sometimes people are just ordained by God in His providence to die a painful death. It's His wisdom, it's His counsel that He keeps to Himself, and He doesn't ask me or you how that should be. Sometimes that's the case. So let's be very, very careful. I've seen it done. That's why I bring it up. Let's be very, very careful not to just assume because someone died a death of, say, cancer that's very, very difficult or any other condition or, say, a terrible accident or they were beheaded in some foreign country by Islamic jihadists, that that meant that they were dying of sin that leads to death. The two don't go together. Now, it is true that oftentimes when God takes someone out with the sin that leads to death, then their death is very painful. But I think it's more painful mentally than it is necessarily physically. While we're on the subject, we need to be cautious also about assuming that things like hurricanes, 
fires and tornadoes are automatically a judgment from God. Now, this is a side issue, but I need to bring it up. They might be. But we don't have enough information to make that proclamation. We don't know what's going on in the mind of God when these things happen. I remember it was said by quite a few after Katrina, blasting New Orleans, that look at what God has done to that evil city. And that some things were brought up that were perfectly legitimate to bring up. There was this whole homosexual pride thing that was going to take place there that the city founders had, had gone ahead and approved. And so a lot of Christians said publicly on the airwaves that this was a judgment against the evil in New Orleans. And they were saying it loudly and proudly until I remember one commentator pointed out to them that, you know, Bourbon Street survived. The French Quarter survived pretty much intact. But I forgot the number of Christian churches that were totally wiped out. What do you make of that, Pastor? And then there was silence. Well, that was their error. Because we shouldn't go running around making these proclamations. For example, we shouldn't make a proclamation that the people of Bastrop were somehow evil. That's why God allowed that fire to go through that area. It is a temptation on the part of some to do that. My advice is keep that opinion to yourself. Because we don't know. So in the same way, we don't know just because someone is suffering terribly with regard to their passing, we don't know that that person is suffering the sin that leads to death. That's a bit arrogant on our part to assume that we know about that. And we also can't say that we know just because God allowed a hurricane to come through, he's judging that particular people. Now, there will be a time when we will be able to say that. problem is we're going to be busy when that time comes. That will be during the tribulation. We're going to be at the judgment seat of Christ, either getting our well done or our not. And being reunited with a lot of friends and family that we probably hadn't seen in a long time because it's right after the resurrection. But on earth, there will be people at that time that will be able to open their Bible and say, okay, that's why they're getting it. This is that bowl judgment or this is that trumpet judgment. You'll be able to do that. We can't do it now. So all I'm saying is let's just be cautious. I know we've all thought it. Hey, I've thought it. But I try not to say it out loud because we end up looking silly sometimes when we actually verbalize that. So those are just two warnings. It's something that we may wonder about. It's something we may talk around around the dinner table, but let's don't go on TV and talk about it because it, it'll make us all look pretty bad. In 1 Samuel chapter 28, beginning in verse 3, this is where this passage begins. The passage says, Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had lamented him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had removed from the land those who were mediums and spiritists. So the Philistines gathered together and came and encamped at Shulam. And Saul gathered all Israel together, and they camped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the camp of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by human or by the prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a woman who is a medium, at Endor, Saul was painfully aware that the Philistine force that had assembled against him was formidable. This language here in this passage, verses 3 through 7, ought to remind us of something that we've already studied in our David series. When the Israelite army was greatly afraid of 
Remember that? Back in chapter 17. Same terminology is used here. So now it's all happening again. And the Philistines have a superior force. David's not there this time. Saul has gone from being king to one who's not, not indwelt with the Holy Spirit, and the kingdom is about to be removed from him, and he's scared to death. There's something interesting here, and I hope you picked it up. In the account that I read a moment ago first, from First Chronicles chapter 10, that passage said that God was going to kill Saul, among other things, because he did not inquire of the Lord. Did you catch it in this passage? In verse 6, when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him. It almost seems to be a contradiction, but it's not. In the summary passage in First Chronicles, the Holy Spirit is making it clear that Saul did not really inquire of the Lord. Here it would appear as though, as we put the two passages together, that whatever Saul did, the Lord did not take it as Saul legitimately inquiring of him. And that's why the Lord is silent here. Ordinarily, he would have spoken to Saul through the prophets, one particular prophet, and that was Samuel. But did you see what happened in verse 3? We're told that Samuel was already dead, and the nation had lamented him. So it means Samuel's been dead for a little bit of time now. Saul has crossed this line where even what he attempts to do right is not coming out right. A lot of times people will do that in an act of desperation. They've lived their life a long time, any way they by golly want to live it, and they want to go to God on their terms and expect God to interact with them on their own terms. Usually it's only people that have been down the road of carnality for a long time that would do that. But there are people that do it. It's almost as if they say, well, listen, I'll talk to you, but you're going to have to do it my way, God. And God says, don't think so. Not the way I work. I'm God and you're not. Have you forgotten that, Saul? I don't think there's a contradiction between the two passages. The first Chronicles chapter 10 passage is an overview. And it states very clearly that that's one of the reasons God killed him, because he didn't inquire the Lord. So we have to assume that in 1 Samuel chapter 28, this is not a legitimate inquiry. And I think the fact that he immediately goes and consults a medium, which is a total violation of the Mosaic Law, and it's a total violation of the law that he was enforcing. Back to verse 3, Saul had removed from the land those who were mediums and spiritists. He knew the right thing, and most people do. Most people know what the right thing is. We don't have to be taught, most of us, that to go punch somebody right in the mouth in the middle of public is not the right thing, or to steal is wrong. Because You know how we know that? It's because when people steal, they tend to run away. They want to do it in the dark where they can't be seen. If they really didn't know it was wrong, they'd do it right out in the open. Oh, I didn't know that adultery was wrong. Well, then why'd you do it in secret? And why are you keeping it secret? Yeah, they know. And Saul knew that what he was going to do was wrong. He's the one that had already sent him out in the first place. So the Lord doesn't play games, but Saul wants to. I told you in the beginning, when you walk out of fellowship with God for an extended length of time, things tend to go from bad to worse. Guess what for Saul? It's about to go from bad to to worse. And we're shocked by this behavior, but we cannot be shocked by the behavior of anyone who has walked out of fellowship with God for an extended period of time. I hate to say it, but there's no sin 
that the unbeliever can commit that the believer also cannot commit in terms of overt sinning. Believers have stolen. Believers have cheated on their time cards. Believers have cheated on their spouses. Believers have murdered. So we can't say, well, see, because somebody murdered, they must not have been a believer. Well, you're going to throw quite a few people out, David being one of them, Moses being another. That's not the case. The table is set. You see the situation. Saul is in a very desperate situation. He's scared to death. God's not communicating with him anymore. Samuel's dead. There's no other prophet that's been risen up. The priests don't communicate with him anymore. I don't know why that is, that the priests won't communicate with him anymore. Anybody have an answer for that? Why? They're dead. Exactly right. He killed them all. That's why why there's no priestly communication. Samuel is dead as the prophet, and the priests are dead. There's no communication from God's priests here. Okay, look at verses 8 through 14, and let's see what he does. Then Saul disguised himself by putting on other clothes. And he went, and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night. And he said, Conjure up for me, please, and bring up for me whom I shall name to you. But the woman said to him, Behold, you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off those who were mediums and spiritists from the land, why are you then laying a snare for my life to bring about my death? And Saul vowed to her by the Lord, saying, and I love this, because even someone who's about to die the sentence of death can still use religious language. As the Lord lives, there should be no punishment come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, who shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. I'll translate it a different way. She freaked out. And the woman spoke to Saul, saying, Why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. And the king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a divine being coming up out of the earth. That word divine being is actually God with a little g. I see a God coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, What is his form? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he's wrapped with a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and bowed with his face to the ground, and did homage. So what is this story? This is one of the most well-known but controversial stories in 1 Samuel. After David's conquering of Goliath in chapter 17, this is the second most well-known story in the book. Well, this is where things go from bad to worse. Saul moves from a disingenuous attempt to inquire of God to a genuine attempt to go around God and consult the dead through the occult. Saul is so fearful of dying that he's willing to dabble in demonism. Sometimes Christians will do this. They don't even have to be afraid of dying. And I will acknowledge readily that it's usually for entertainment purposes that a believer will consult their horoscope in the morning newspaper or just for fun let someone read their poem or turn the tarot cards. But I've got to tell you, in my view, that's a bad idea. Because when we do that, we're playing the game on the enemy's home court. And it's dangerous. I would counsel against it, even if you just think it's for fun. Just for entertainment purposes, I would counsel against it. People ask me, what is your horoscope or what is your sign? I don't know. 
guys look it up. I know what the name of it is, but I don't tell them. I'm not going to tell them I know what my sign is because I'm not playing that game. I'm not going to get sucked into that. Stay away from these things. It's not funny. It's not entertainment. It's either fraudulent, and most of it is, I think, or it's demonic. But either way, it's to be avoided. And heaven forbid that you would ever consult your horoscope or a medium or tarot cards to really find out what the future's like for you. If you find yourself doing that, then you know you probably, if you hadn't crossed that line, you're really, really close to it. Confess that, repent it, and get back in fellowship as quick as you possibly can. But that's exactly why Saul is here. He's so afraid of dying that he'll do anything, including dabbling in demonism, to get an answer. We've all come to know this woman in this chapter by her title, The Witch at Endor, or The Witch of Endor. The Hebrew term that is used is actually Ba'alach, which means a sorceress or a necromancer. A necromancer is one who attempts to communicate with the dead, and necromancy is sometimes synonymous with witchcraft. Hence, this popular designation for this woman as the witch at Endor. Some of your Bibles will probably say the medium at Endor. But if someone wants to say the witch at Endor and they understand why, that Ba'Allah means sorcery or necromancy, necromancy can be also understood as witchcraft, then that's fine. I don't care what you call her, but she's dabbling in demonism. And it's not right. Throughout history, even before the church age, This was a controversial passage, and there's been a great deal of discussion about the proper interpretation of this passage and what is really happening here. Does she have the power to actually pull someone up at will from the dead, particularly someone like Samuel? Is this really Samuel that's being pulled up from the dead? Some of the early church, like Origen, departed from a literal understanding of this passage and held that it wasn't really Samuel that was called up, but an apparition. An apparition is a a ghost-like image of a person. It's something like maybe you would see at one of these haunted houses nowadays or maybe a carnival, like a hologram kind of thing. So maybe this is what she conjured up. But that does depart from a literal understanding of the text. And we've got to be careful when we start doing that because if we do it here, what's to stop us from doing it the next time just because it's a difficult passage to understand? I tend to side with, in this case, the majority who would hold that this is actually Samuel that is brought back and brought back with God's implicit permission. Samuel's not coming back unless God has given his permission in this situation. Also, what Samuel says here doesn't in any way appear to be demonic or demonic apparition. This is exactly what we would have expected Samuel to say if Samuel was brought back. It's something. It's the same thing that he said in life. But I want to make sure you understand here that this is a very unusual situation. And this is not in any way normative. Once you die go to heaven, you're going to stay there. Unless you're Lazarus or Samuel or Jesus Christ, 
will be resurrected at a later time. This is a very odd situation. It's not normative, and we shouldn't take this as it's being customary for the church age or this other age in any way. One more thing before I leave these verses. Did you notice it looks very much like the woman can see Samuel, but Saul can't. Saul can hear Samuel, but this woman is the only one that can actually see him. What Samuel tells Saul is certainly not music to his ears. Look now at verses 15 through 19. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Now that's a fair question. He's in paradise, the Old Testament section of Sheol, the underworld, and now he's being brought up, has to be with God's permission, to give one last message to Saul. Remember, during the last part of Samuel's life, he's given message after message after message to Saul, and he hasn't paid any attention. So I can see why Samuel would be a little bit testy here. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I'm greatly distressed. For the Philistines are waging war against me, and God has departed from me and answers me no more, either through prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have called you, that you should make known to me what I should do. He ignores Samuel for his whole life, and now he gets in a bind, and he wants Samuel to come back from the dead to minister to him. That's a bit much. Verse 16, And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has departed from you and has become your adversary? By the way, Samuel's already told him that in line. In verse 17, and the Lord has done accordingly as he spoke through me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and has given it to your neighbor David. As you did not obey the Lord and did not execute his fierce wrath on Amalek, so the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will also give over Israel along with you into the hands of the Philistines. Therefore, tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Indeed, the Lord will give over the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. Probably not what Saul wanted to hear. Israel will be defeated, Saul will die, and his sons will die. And then finally, in verses 20 through 25, after this news, we see, we observe Saul beside himself in a state of despair. And the medium's not too happy herself, really. She feels like Saul has put her safety in jeopardy. And now Saul won't eat. And the implication is, at least for the medium, you got me into this mess. Now you're going to kill yourself, and there's going to be nobody around to protect me. Because remember, Saul had vouched for her safety. I see her point. And now he wants, he gets bad news, and he wants out. She finally convinces Saul to eat, and he goes on his way back to the army Back to the battle. This is the night before the big battle. Now, if you would, skip over a couple chapters and to chapter 31, and we come to the very next morning in chapter 31. And I am taking this sequentially for the sake of simplicity. It's the next morning, and the anticipated battle is taking place, just like Samuel said it would. It's interesting to note in chapter 31 of 1 Samuel, God's not mentioned. It's as if he has spoken, and there's nothing left to say. He's already done his talking. Saul will die this day. The first report is of the death of Jonathan. 
she loved Jonathan, David's wonderful son, along with his two brothers, Abinadab and Malkishua. Nothing is said of how Jonathan died. But as I stressed before, the text has reported nothing of any wrongdoing on his part. And while this type of warfare is so much different from the type of warfare that we see happening today, warfare is warfare, and any death in any battle is not going to be pretty. Especially back then. It's not like they had a bullet come from a long way away and kill them instantly. They were typically chopped to pieces. So we cannot say that the text is implying that Jonathan had a comfortable death. It's possible that maybe an arrow hit him, but that's not the point here. We can't just say, because Saul dies in a difficult manner, that everybody there that died in a difficult manner was dying a sin that leads to death. I hope you see that that is not validated here. You know, some people are blessed by association. And others appear to be cursed by association. Jonathan was just being a good son. He was doing it the best he could to honor his father, but he called out, when his father was wrong, he called out his father as being wrong. I love Jonathan. I think he's one of the shining lights in 1 Samuel. I think when we do get to heaven, he'll be hanging out with David quite a bit, and they'll be having a ball. I think their friendship continued right along after death. Saul and Jonathan will die in the same battle, the same day, and one will very likely receive a well done at the resurrection of the Old Testament saints, and the other will receive anything but a well done. Verse 3 reports that Saul was hit by multiple arrows and was seriously wounded. And then let's pick up the narrative in verses 4 through 6. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and pierce me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come up and pierce me through and make sport of me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. So Saul took his sword and fell on it. And when the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died with his three sons, his armor bearer, and all his men on that day together. It was a slaughter. Remember these verses, because in a few weeks when we get to Second Samuel and the report of what happened to David, the guy that comes and reports it to David is going to be lying. He's not going to report what actually happened. And that doesn't turn out really well for that guy that comes and lies to David either. That discussion will have to be delayed for just a bit of time. Verse 7 indicates that the defeat was complete. And as a result, Israel lost several towns to Philistine occupation. The chapter then ends this way. The chapter and the book, although I should say, in Hebrew Bibles, First and Second Samuel were originally one book. And it came about on the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head and stripped off his weapons and sent them throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. And they put his weapons in the temple of Astaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shon. Now when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and walked all night 
and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons down from the wall of Beth Shun, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh, and they fasted for seven days. So ends the story of Saul, and a sad story it is. For years, he had rebelled against Yahweh, and he paid the ultimate price. The text here does not use the New Testament language of the sin that leads to death. But the First Chronicles passage that I quoted in the beginning of this time together tonight does specify that God kills Saul. When we spend the bulk of our time walking out of fellowship with God, we should expect nothing but bad to come from it. The moral to this story is to confess and quickly repent when we fail, not to double down on our disobedience. 